and welcome. Today on today's podcast, we've got the absolute pleasure of being joined by very experienced physiotherapist and former lecturer, Sue Gunter. Sue Gunter has worked, worked in a variety of settings, including having set up her own practice. So before Sue enters the world of retirement, I've invited her to join us and share with her insights and knowledge about the wonderful profession that we are all part of. Welcome to the Biology of Business, where we talk about the anatomy and physiology of a business, so you can apply your clinical reasoning skills to your business reasoning and create a healthy, sustainable, impactful and profitable clinic. I hope you enjoy listening and subscribe. So welcome, Sue. Thank you very much for taking time this afternoon to, to join me and share your insights about the physiotherapy profession. Okay. My mum was a physiotherapist and my go-to when I did my schooling and all the rest of it was I was not going to be a physiotherapist. I'd do anything but. And then I looked at medicine. I went and worked for a vet for a while. Couldn't cope with as an animal nurse before they were qualified in the way that they are now. I looked at um, doing veterinary surgery and actually I couldn't really deal with putting animals down that could have been helped that was really the main thing that I thought if I do this for my livelihood something in me is going to die and that I wasn't prepared to do that in the end very grudgingly I said I'd do physiotherapy by then we were two weeks into the term there was a place at the Royal RAF School of Physiotherapy still vacant and I joined two weeks after everybody else with the dog in tow and digs found at the last minute and I've never regretted it is what I can say which brings me on to the my view of what a physiotherapist is and what their strengths are in a very in a kernel really is that we are extremely fortunate to be able to use our hands in everything that we do and behind that you have to have a brain and eyes that see and unless you have those three things in my view you're not as good a physiotherapist as you could be now i know this is very anti current thinking in physiotherapy which is very hands-off but having been through manual physiotherapy as a an income source all my life I know that most of my patients that I could do more for was because I could use my hands and know where to go and what to do safely for that patient and I think that's really what I would say was the biggest strength of physiotherapists that we have tended to lose these days. And you mentioned the importance of the eyes and the brain as well, and of listening and hearing and seeing, yes. computing what the yes. information that the patient brings to the appointment. Exactly. And I think that unless you view people with an open mind the minute they walk through the door, you are actually looking past that may not be true, if that makes sense. You actually need to really just have no preconceived ideas of who this patient is, doesn't matter what other people have said, what other people have sent to you, you need to wipe the slate clean. And my opening gambit for most of my patients when I've not met them before is, what can I do for you? Because your idea of what you can do for them and a professional ideas of what you should be able to do for them is not necessarily what they're looking for. And in private practice and in the independent sector in particular, that is the one thing that we have the time and the space to do because we can actually ask people what they expect of you. And I think that is a very root skill for somebody within the independent sector. If you work for the NHS, and I've done a lot of link visits to 
physios in the NHS. I've worked with clinical educators in the NHS and obviously the students that have gone out when I was working for the university as a senior. They have a format that you have to follow that is made by accountants. And the problem with accountants is that they can only go where other people have been before. They're not really very good at going at uncharted territory. They're quite interested in that they're called chartered accountants mostly. It's quite, uh, it's a headspace that is very different in my view with physiotherapists. So instead of being formulaic, you're describing that having the opportunity and inviting the client to really describe what their desired outcomes are and what they perceive the obstacles are that are in their way to get that outcome enables you then to get thinking creatively and outside of formulas to help remove those obstacles and get them that outcome. And I think it, it goes deeper than that, because I think that actually, if you cannot do what they are asking you to do or explain to them why it's not possible in a way that they can accept or why that outcome or that vision that they have may be ill-conceived, you can't get a dialogue going. And there's no way that we can actually, in the short time we have with them, create an environment that will get them working as they should work on their own unless they actually feel they've been heard. And they won't be heard unless they can tell you what they are expecting. Yeah, so they're having the opportunity to fully communicate what it is that they want yes. to say yes. and we're able to serve them exactly as imposing. Exactly. Um, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about being in the independent sector is that you can actually say, okay, well, I think that this this is important, but with behind that you can have a long-term view. And I've been very lucky. My first patient I had when I went into the private sector was in 1981, which is when I started in private practice. And he came to me right throughout his life. In the end, he came to me when he was going, he was, he had multiple problems and basically he was unsafe to drive. And I actually lost him as a client because I, when he went out and I saw that he was driving on his own and he wasn't safe to drive, he couldn't see basically. I asked him, I said to him, I'll come and see you, but I don't want you driving here on, on your own. Mm. And I misjudged him because he was so infuriated that he never saw me again. So you have to be quite sensitive to how you actually pass judgment mm. in a lot of ways and how you can actually make sure that you're working from the same page. And that takes a lot of time, which unfortunately a lot of the NHS sectors do not have. And people go away and that's why they end up putting their hand in their pocket to come and see you. And this is what also drives people to go from practitioner to practitioner because they're not finding that they're heard or getting, you use the word acceptable, they're not getting answers that they can accept or understand or yes. make sense to them. Exactly. Um, okay, sometimes it's basically they've got an holistic view of the world uh, and that's quite difficult to deal with. And then that's when your communication skills with the significant others who live with them is really essential if you're going to serve that patient's needs effectively, because it's not just you. You'll find that in some ways there's a collaboration with people who are living together where some people can feel quite guilty that their partner or whatever is very ill and they won't let them actually have the freedom to fall, if you like. It's not obviously a freedom to fall. That's not what I'm suggesting. But actually they have to find out what they can and they can't do and then they'll be much more able to work with you to actually achieve goals that they can actually 
realistically achieve within a time scale that you can agree. So helping them as a family or as a unit go back almost to like as a child to learn to walk, the child has to fall. Absolutely. To get the desired outcome of whatever it is after an injury or somebody that's come to see you. They have Absolutely. to give them the space to fail to identify what needs working on. Exactly. What their personal priorities are. Exactly. And I think that personal priority is what is really important. And there are some people that I have treated who had the capability, if they worked on it, to be able to become completely independent and mobile. But actually, all they wanted to do was actually to be able to get into their wheelchair, go and watch a, a football match. And that was as much as they were, that was as far as they could see. And if you can't actually get them to get that sense of satisfaction, then if you're lucky, they'll then say, perhaps you can come back and we'll see what more we can do. So it's them also achieving, seeing that they're achieving what they've set themselves. It's interesting. I remember very much being in college, and I'm sure anybody that I was in college with you might be listening, thinking when we had the lessons on psychology, I'm training to be a physiotherapist. I'm not training to be a psychologist. That's a different degree. Thank you very much. And then as the years have gone on, I have woken up. Yes, I think it comes with that you have to have these skills. Um, yeah. One of the things you've mentioned previously, or I've heard you speak, or you spoke of previously, is the one of the joys of our profession is we have the opportunity and the time to be able to really start thinking creatively about solutions for clients who have perhaps been given a formulaic prescription in the past that isn't working for them and we have the opportunity and the skill it's something you've described to me as a real strength of our profession is the creative thinking yes and I think within that creative thinking is also the specialization so we're very lucky that we are now it's now accepted although I consider physiotherapy to be a have multiple skills that are necessary you can't be a good physio if you can't pick up a chest that needs treatment and if you can't you think oh gosh these are red flags has this person does this person need to go and have a scan so you've got to have that broad skill base and then you have your specialist skills which bring the people to your door which perhaps are very unique to you that you can actually do and that's where EPD is so very important and being able to think outside the box in CPD. So I was very fortunate, if you like. When I first started, I discovered, uh, basically, I, uh, my digs were at the bottom of the hill. I lived, I worked at RAF, the college was at RAF Halton. And if anybody knows Wendover, if you go from Wendover up to where the college was, there was this huge hill that you climbed up. And I can remember thinking, gosh, I'm unfit, and thinking I'd go and get myself fit. And after about four months of making myself run around the field and never getting further than the first third, I thought there's something wrong here. And I went to my GP and he was pretty, pretty impatient. He said, what are you doing? Oh, physio, oh, yeah, I suppose we better get this checked. And in fact, I had a, I didn't actually have an atrial wall, which is why I've struggled to do any running. And when I had that corrected, I had problems with arrhythmias afterwards. And somebody suggested I went and saw somebody who was an acupuncturist who had trained in China. And uh, she sorted out in about two sessions. And that made me say, this is what I'm going to do next. And I went on and did acupuncture and osteopathy at the same time, as well as working full-time in the NHS and also doing these courses and trying to set up my own practice. So I was pretty busy at that time. So Conventionally, an arrhythmia would have been treated with a pharmaceutical solution rather than with an acupuncture solution or left. Yeah, eventually it came to that. I had a, it worked very well. I, it was no problem until the latter years I 
There's a technique that I used to do, and this is very important for people to realize they must look after themselves. So when I went to this lady who is an acupuncturist and I went, she needed some help and I tried to do something, she got very agitated to not to do that. And basically I was doing chest thrusts. She said, you should never do that. And about 20 years later, I was doing a chest thrust on a patient who lifted his elbows and proceeded to shove his elbows under my diaphragm and knock the heart out of rhythm again. And I tried for about two years to get back to work as I was at that time I was very busy because I, I was working from nine till nine I had a family my husband was disabled so the reason I was able to manage that is that I bought a house where I could have my practice and my home within the same building so we had a few amusing instances for example when I had a patient waiting in the door and the door was rattling and the dog could open the door and the dog opened the door and there was my youngest daughter standing on her head in the living room and the waiting room got up and walked out and thought she was in the back but anyway that was her loss. Uh, so yes that was one of my questions for you uh, it was how on earth you juggled having a young family and setting up and growing your, your own practice and running your own practice and all the hours that both take. But so that that, that's how so basically I was lucky I lived across the road from the, the GP practice I had a lovely GP who I got on very well. I treated him, he treated me, and from that my practice grew. So do not underestimate the power of communication with the local practices and GPs. Make friends of your locality is all I can say. Sometimes yeah. it has a flip side that's not that helpful, but in the independent sector, it definitely helps. Yeah, and it's about how collectively you're contributing to the local community and the well-being of the local community. And exactly. The that you have as professionals to do so. That's right, exactly. And, and work with your colleagues as well. I had, there were a few issues when I first started in that one of the physios who I trained with said, what are you doing now? And I said, I was working in private practice and I was just right about ready to leave the NHS. And she looked at me and she said, you're not, are you? And I said, yes. And she, and she said, but why? I said, because I don't have time to do have my family to live at that time. You didn't have the career progression that you have now. So I could not earn enough money to keep the family going. And that's why I went into the private sector full time and then later into teaching. So you needed to be able to support your family, which is why private practice was the, the most obvious option for you, because you had an alternative option to the NHS salary, which was limited at the time. So you exactly. started up your own practice, but there just weren't enough hours in the day to manage exactly. that family and your NHS job. So something had to give somewhere. Exactly. And that was the transition. So basically, I gave up my NHS practice when I earned the equivalent of my NHS salary for a year in that preceding year. So I had two years of a buffer of a double salary, as it were. But it was hard work. I don't ever think we're not going to have to work hard and long hours. And I think the, one of the main things that a physio must have is endurance. Mm. There's no doubt about that. You mentioned there that you received an uncomfortable level of, or perhaps I'm putting words in your mouth there by saying uncomfortable, but you received a professional judgment that what you were doing in terms of leaving the NHS was what your colleague thought was the right thing for you. All right. Yes, she thought I was insane. <laughs> Absolutely insane. And why did you think you were insane? Because of the risk you were taking or because... It... I never, I, I just looked at her and I thought, is this, are these words going to be worth my time explaining to you? And I thought, and I just let choose your battles. Some, oh. some pe people are worth persuading, some people aren't. What, did you, what do you feel after all your years of experience of running your own practice and setting up your own practice? What do you feel the biggest challenges are for independent physiotherapists who are setting up their own practices? 
having confidence in their judgment, building first, building the communication between supportive professionals. You will find that, well, it's much better now than it was. But when I was started, most of the doctors looked at me as if I had six heads because obviously I went into acupuncture. In fact, one of the very eminent orthopedic surgeons, when I, I was seeing some of these patients and I thought, some of them would really have benefited from the acupuncture and osteopathy courses. And obviously, because you're in that sort of environment, you need to get the agreement of the people that you're working with and who are ultimately responsible for the patients. And I said, can I try that? And I tried to explain to him. And he just, he just looked at me and said, don't you dare use that on any of my patients. And so there, at that time, there was a huge barrier to physios doing anything other than the consultant saying hit on the head three times with a hammer and you went and hit them on the head three times with a hammer that sort of thing you were to do what you were told to do rather than use your own yes and and i'd say that's one of the biggest advantages that physios graduating today have is that they are autonomous practitioners and we've our generation had to fight for that and we did fight very hard we had some wonderful people who really didn't make a difference at every level showing themselves to be capable and sometimes better than the average GP and sometimes some areas even specialists at at judging things and I think that's something we don't pat ourselves on the back enough for as a profession is that we do have a lot more capabilities than perhaps we give ourselves credence for. I totally agree with you there Sue that as physiotherapists one of the biggest problems I see is that as we undervalue ourselves our skills and the contribution that we make to people's lives. Yes I mean I can just uh, So I was gardening outside yesterday and one of the local ladies came past and we stopped and chatted for a while and she was going on holiday and she said, I don't think I'm going to be able to go because I've lifted a gate and I can't do anything. And I looked at her and I said, why don't you let me sort it? Which you shouldn't really do. But I looked at her and I thought, she's really struggling there. And she had treatment and so on and hadn't actually been given some exercises. And her sacroiliac joint was obviously not as it should be and so on from the way that she was standing and she came and it it took virtually no time at all and I saw her again this morning and she was completely pain-free first night at night without waking up for however long and you, you need to be quite confident and sure of yourself because we do have that professional boundary that we shouldn't push ourselves forward but it's a it's not really a pushing yourself forward it's actually having a compassion for people when you see them struggling and they've been through the system and not got where they need to get. Right. It's having the skill and the communication skill to actually guide people through to the right, right choices. And of that, know what you can't deal with. Whatever you do, I always used to say to my students, just if you learn nothing else, learn your red flags. Yeah. And that's one of the differences that I would say with there's so many, a lot of people who call themselves physical therapists who do sort of short courses and think they can go and do anything and I know uh, and they set themselves up as masseurs and so on and they're quite frankly I think they're quite dangerous and I've treated people as one chap who came to me who had a had been to somebody like that he actually had a uh, arterial blockage and he was about to lose his leg and he came to me with this back and leg pain that somebody told him was that and when I told him it, it wasn't that and he was going to see his GP and I wrote to his GP at that time I had a good communication with them all and he was whipped into hospital in no time at all and all sorted and it's having that skill to to get that and in the private sector getting those links is really important 
really important and having the doctors and the GPs trust you sufficiently. And, uh, and other, your judgment and your professional opinion to listen yes. and take action to help yes. you get the right outcome. Yes. Uh, there's another chap who I, I think about who came to me with back pain. And there's a technique that I use that is actually an osteopathic technique where you go into the belly and you do a so And I put my finger in and I thought, shouldn't have a pulse there and out a bit. And oh, shouldn't have a pulse there. And I sent him, I asked him to go to see his GP that evening, phoned him up and Fortunately, I managed to speak to his GP. He was on the table within five hours and his, he had an aortic aneurysm and it was actually just about to blow and it was that close. And with MPs <laughs> getting more and more tricky, actually, as an independent sector has been the first point of contact, it's even more important that we... Exactly. And not... also know, that they know where to send people and uh, people that will come in and I'll say, I'm not touching you, go to a because I know there's not even any point in them waiting for a GP appointment because it'll be two weeks away. And you already mentioned you felt that the greatest nuggets that you could give the young physiotherapists that were coming through were to really understand their red flags and to really listen. Yes, and then the other thing too, which again is, has slipped quite a lot, is to learn their basic anatomy. I think they've short-changed the year one training requirement to a lot of self-study, and I think that's a great shame because I don't think you can actually beat really learning what your hands-on anatomy if you're going to be a manual therapist in particular. But I think the same applies to respiratory and so on. I know I'm being old-fashioned in that and saying that, but I do think that we, I was lucky, we had a full year learning our anatomy and physiology. I think they get about three, three months to cover that now and most of the training. And it isn't enough because there's too much detail. You, you cannot learn such a complex subject in three months you just get the basics and you don't you don't you, you need to be able to put your hand on the body and say build it up in your mind from where your hand is to where the person is lying on the couch and know exactly what's between you and that point and the only way you can do that is if you have a really sound and I think that's even more important in the independent sector because that is what makes us different and what makes people come to us. I really remember one of my tutors saying that to me. He was a Dutch chap. And I remember him saying to me, you had to be able to visualise it like a TV programme, like a TV camera. You had to be able to go inside the patient right. in your mind and understand how it's moving, how it's not moving, what's working, what's not working. That's right. Be able to build up that mechanical picture, that mechanical hypothesis and then test it. That's why I mentioned the, the gentleman with the aortic aneurysm, because if I hadn't learnt my anatomy and where all the vessels were, I wouldn't have sent that patient straight to the doctor and he would be dead. Would have been, he would have died that night. Yeah. And I think the other thing I'd also say for all practitioners, particularly people coming in to the independent sector, is to trust your instincts. Because sometimes they come in and you can think, oh, this sounds like such and such. And uh, again, I can only uh, give an anecdotal thing to, to uh, highlight it. So I had this lady who came in with a apparently a left frozen shoulder, felt her neck, looked at her range of movement, her range of movement was limited, left rotation, fairly typical kind of cervicogenic shoulder arm pain. And I sat down and I used to do massage and I used to sit behind the patient and just feel before I did anything, that was all, I, massage was my thinking time and it relaxed the patient and so on. So I, I'm a great believer in massage, not necessarily because you're actually achieving much other than really good communication, both physically and mentally with what you're doing. And that just gives you the time space to do that and think through your options. 
And I can remember putting my hand on her neck and thinking, I should do X, Y, Z, but this really doesn't feel right. And I decided to send her to the GP for a check. And the next day, I was quite good friends with one of the ambulance drivers. And he came and he said to me, he said, what did you do to Mrs. yesterday? She came. We had to go. We had a call out to her last night and she's dead. You can imagine what that did. Mm. But she actually had a huge tumour and it was right within the spine and so on and it had enveloped everything. If I had done what I planned to do, she would have died in my surgery. When you get that feeling, just touch this. Oh, yeah, this isn't right. Touch your trust trust your instincts, trust your gut. Yeah. Oh look. I think that's what oh, I was. No, I was just gonna have a bit. I was just gonna have a quick look. <laughs> yes. I was going to ask you, Sue, I was, that's the other thing I was going to ask you, and um, we can decide whether we keep this in or not. You mentioned that sometimes as a profession, we can actually sabotage ourselves with our own professionalment of one another that can be more harmful than useful in terms of the contribution that makes to the perception of the profession more widely in society. I think there is a sector of society, and it depends where you are, to a large degree, not in hospital so much, of, oh, she's a physio, what does she know? And I think that this, we still carry as a monkey on the back of the profession. And it's a headspace that comes internally and externally. I'm just a physio. And I think we really need to change that. We really should be proud of what we can do because until we actually really realize that we have a diverse skill that covers a multitude of illnesses. I would think that there isn't, there aren't many physios who couldn't be transplanted into another speciality without too much trouble, because basically they are adaptable, they are prepared to think, they're prepared to learn, they're prepared to do the homework, and if they have to change, they will change. And I think that if you actually look at the variety of people we have to deal with, the variety of conditions we have to deal with, we really should value ourselves for that skill because it's it's like looking at somebody walking and taking in everything without realising quite what you're looking at. And I don't think we actually quite realise what we're looking at when we're looking at ourselves. Thank you, Sue. Hit the nail on the head beautifully and more articulate than I could because sometimes I find it very frustrating that it feels like the top of our profession is about becoming a doctor. Whereas we're a different profession, we have different skills, we have different attributes and have a completely, have a contribution that we can make in, a, in another way to, to yes. achieve their outcome. And the, the top of our profession should be being the best physiotherapist we can be, not by becoming a doctor. That's a different Exactly. The doctorates and all that, okay, if you're going to go into teaching and all the rest of it, fine, go and get those academics. But actually, those academics don't actually match that instinct of when you put your hand on somebody and you think, what's going on here? Yeah. And when the client walks into your clinic, the, how they feel about your communication, yeah. about your relationship with them and whether they've been heard is more important to them than the pieces of paper on your wall because they don't know how to interpret those or read those but they know yeah. how to read you yes and i think the other thing too is to remind people to take especially a note of the last comment when somebody walks out the door because quite often the patient as they walk out the door will tell you what they're actually worried about and also to remember the names when i'm <laughs> saying that <laughs> i can remember on one occasion i had a wife who was suffering from neck problems because she was going through, they were going through marital problems. 
the husband who was coming to me for the same reason and the girlfriend who was coming and they were all if I don't remember who told me what I am in deep doo-doo <laughs> I think that must be like a day in the life of being a hairdresser maybe <laughs> oh, my so Sue if you had a crystal ball in front of you and you were looking in it what would it show you about the future of physiotherapy I think we're going to be fine I think that the uh, the world's state at the moment is thank god for scientific pieces. <laughs> We are blowing each other apart. Yeah, in many ways. It's, uh, I... Yeah, yeah. And that's what we, we do so well is the pieces and help rehabilitate people to live to their best of their potential exactly. as far exactly. as they can take that. Yes, and whatever that takes. And that therefore makes our role right now absolutely critical to... Absolutely essential. And it's very easy at the moment to look at the world and think, what can I do? Just do your best. Thank you. Wonderful. Right. Thank you very much. One of the big issues of pricing. How do you price your skills? Now, what I do and have done, and it's worked for many years, is without being greedy, and I add that very specifically, I take what I need to have in a year to survive. I then say I can see X patients in a week, and I do it on a 40-week year, not a 52-week year, a 40-week year, because that gives you flexibility for training, gives you flexibility for whatever. Divide it by that. And if you can't come out on what you're charging, you're not charging enough. Yeah. Yeah, because you're not even going to break even. You ain't going to break even. And if you go bust, you're no good to anybody. Thank you. I can't tell you how many times I've been beating that drum. I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this content valuable, here are four ways I can help you grow your practice for free. Firstly, grab a copy of How to Create a Super Successful Practice Plan at markinsmethod.com forward slash grow. And whilst you're there, you can watch the free training to help you tackle the common problems clinic owners just like you face. Thirdly, at markinsmethod.com forward slash grow, you can sign up for my free newsletter where I send out weekly hints, tips, and links to podcasts and other resources that you might find helpful and inspiring to grow your practice. And finally, please leave a five-star review so I can access more influential guests and speakers and bring their lessons back to you here. I have something really special to offer you. I'm going to be running live in-person workshop. This event will give us an opportunity to meet one another. And during the workshop, I'm going to go through the seven fundamentals of practice profit planning. You're going to understand what it is that your clients really value about what you do so that you can make them an offer and trade your clinical expertise for an income which means that you have a profitable practice that's sustainable and take home pay for yours and your family's financial security. You'll get an opportunity to meet other like-minded clinic owners. I'm limiting the numbers because I want to make sure that you leave having had an awesome experience and with a complete plan. So click the link below and you'll find the details and I look forward to seeing you there.